I need to make um, a number of different uh, comments as, as we get into this series, kind of to set the stage, make sure that we un- understand kind of the, the roadmap here and, and lay some ground rules. So let me make uh, quickly a four uh, introductory comments about this series. Number one, uh, if you've been a part of Harmony for any significant amount of time, uh, you know that we talk about these topics on a regular basis. Uh, in fact, we talk about them at least uh, every two years uh, and often more frequently uh, than that. And we do so for two reasons. One, uh, the Bible regularly talks about marriage, sexuality, and singleness. In fact, you can hardly find a book in the Bible that doesn't address these topics in some way. Two, our elders believe that faithfully pastoring this church during our current cultural moment demands it. Many, if not most, of the major issues of our day uh, revolve around sexuality, marriage, and singleness. And therefore, if we're going to faithfully shepherd and lead you in following Jesus, we have to come back to what the Bible says about these things time and time again. Number two, uh, this first message will likely raise some questions I'm not going to have time uh, to answer today. If you do happen to have questions, I want to uh, recommend, actually ask you uh, to do uh, at least one of three things. A, uh, go to our website and watch the Flourish sermon series uh, from uh, two years ago. B, talk with one of our elders, pastors, or staff members. And C, come back for the rest of the series, all right? If you will do these three things, I'm quite confident that the questions that will be raised today will be answered. Introductory comment number three is for parents. Parents, I want you to know, and I really want to be clear about this, children of all ages are welcome in our services at any time. In fact, I would encourage it, particularly as soon as five years of age and older. However, this might not be the series to have them in here um, in big church for, uh, because much of the material that we're going to be talking about is maybe I might say PGs, okay? At least a PG. Now, I'm not sure we should use a movie rating system to talk about what's in the Bible, okay, to categorize the Bible, but... Uh, There is going to be some sensitive information in here. And so uh, if you're not currently uh, having your children participate um, in our children's ministry, you might want to do so at least for the next uh, three weeks. As far as other school-age children go, though, I want to strongly encourage their participation and their presence uh, for each and every one of these uh, messages. Our preteens and teens are learning about sexuality, marriage, and singleness from a lot of other uh, venues, a lot of other sources, whether it's school, uh, whether it's social media, whether it's the internet, whether it's TV. I mean, you can even go to places such as Walmart to learn about these things. In fact, did you know that you can learn a lot about sex at Walmart? More than you will ever want to, I promise you, all right? Not things that actually you would want to warn. And all joking aside, What our kids are learning from these other sources, in most cases, is harmful to their flourishing. And so of all the demographics that need to to be here and need this series, our preteens and our teens need it the most. And so if you have a preteen or teen, have them here uh, for these messages. Number four, and, and this is most important, these topics are very, very sensitive. I think we all realize that. And so I want you to know right now, um, from the very start, Our preaching team is going to do our best to deliver messages that are full of both grace and truth 
of conviction and compassion. So we want to follow the example of Jesus who did address these topics. And when he addressed them, he was always firm, but loving. Firm, but loving. And we're going to strive uh, to, to be the same. We want to be men who are full of truth, but we're also full of tears. And that's the way that we present God's word and we present the truth uh, to you. Not fudging on it in any way, but making sure that just like Jesus did, we are showing grace, particularly to those who struggle with these issues. And since this is, if I can be honest with you, probably the most difficult job a preacher ever has, I want to ask you that you will be praying for us as we uh, study and then deliver these messages. And I want to now pray just once again for us all um, as we dig in. So will you join me here? Um, Lord, we come to you. We, we, we again, um, I know we just pray, but we can, quite frankly, never pray enough. Um, and we don't pray enough. So I'm coming to you uh, now again in the mighty name of Jesus. And just want to ask that uh, you will use this series in a great way. Lord, we're in a battle. We're in a war. It's not against flesh and blood, but it's against uh, Satan himself. And he's fighting us and attacking us in these areas more than in any other area. And so, Lord, I want to pray for protection. I want to pray that we will allow your word to speak. I want to pray that we will not put up defenses, but we will allow your Holy Spirit to convict us, to challenge us, but then also to show us grace. So that there might be healing and that we may flourish as the people and as the church that you created us to. Lord, I want to pray uh, that you will be uh, with myself and, and my brothers as we uh, bring your word. Uh, we pray that we will do so as uh, broken men speaking to broken people with the only hope that we have, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And use that gospel to do a great work in Harmony Bible Church and through Harmony Bible Church in the days ahead. For your glory, Father. Amen. All right. Now that you patiently waited... Let's talk about these vases or vases, if you prefer. In fact, let's do a quick poll. How many of you say vase? Raise your hand. All right, lots of vases. Now you put your hand down. Uh, and if you still are, are willing to do this, how many of you say vase? Do we have any vases? Okay, we've got a few vases in here. I was guessing here in Southeast Iowa, it would be predominantly vase, right? What kind of vase people, most of us? Your vase people, okay? Just get, get, get over it, all right? So we'll go with vase uh, in this series. Now, this first vase illustrates how God created mankind. So when God made us, he made us perfect. He made us flawless. He made us a beautiful work of art. However, that didn't last too long. And it didn't last too long because our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided that they were going to rebel against God. And when they rebelled against God, they became broken in unspeakable and in innumerable ways like this. Now, you're like, that's really dramatic. I got to be careful because when I practice this, I cut myself. So you say it's really dramatic, but actually Adam and Eve's fall into brokenness was much more dramatic than that. 
And when they sinned, they became again incredibly broken, like this vase. And tragically, the same thing has happened to all of us. When they were broken, we became broken. We became broken in unspeakable ways. Now, the truth is, is that some of us here today, we, we feel like this vase. We really, we come in and we, we feel, we know that that is the reality for us. And we're literally falling apart today. Others of us feel a little broken. We've got some issues. We can see that a little bit. We're mostly holding it together, but we're definitely broken. And then there's other of us who, who don't think that we're broken at all. We think that we've got it together. I'm looking out at a, a lot of people today. We've got people watching online or other campuses. And, and most of us are trying to at least act like we're not broken today, that, right? That's what we do when we come and we gather as a church. But the reality is, the truth is, is that this is all of us. Every single one of us is broken and we're broken in unspeakable ways, in ways that we don't even fully understand. However, that's not all of the story, right? And it's not all of the story because wonderfully, through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God can take and does take our brokenness and he makes us beautiful again. This vase illustrates this very truth. This vase is a artwork known as kintsugi. Kintsugi, so why don't you say, it's kind of a cool word to say, all right? We're gonna use this all throughout the series, so say it with me, kintsugi. Okay, you gotta do better than that, kintsugi. Kintsugi is a, a Japanese art form in which broken pottery is taken and it's put back together using a lacquer that's mixed with gold, silver, or platinum, valuable metals. So the word kintsugi means golden joinery. And in this art form, one of the unique things about it is that once this pottery is put back together, and it's put back together, by the way, not to hide the flaws, but actually to highlight them and to make them more beautiful with some type of precious metal. And once a broken pottery is put back together with kintsugi, it is both more beautiful and it is more valuable than it was before it was ever broken. Now, full disclosure, this is not actually a piece of kintsugi, all right? This is a fake. The reason this is a fake is because the one that I wanted cost $11,000. <laughs> and we didn't have that in the budget. So this is the $20 version from Kohl's. Actually, you know, at Kohl's, you never pay full price for anything because you're always going to use a coupon. And we use a coupon, I think maybe a little Kohl's cash or something. Um, so it's probably a $40 vase, not a $20 vase. You know how you go to Kohl's and you spend like $150, they give you the receipt and it says you saved $650 uh, here today. I always tell Eva, you didn't save $650, you spent $150, right? Anyway, but this, 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 this is a wonderful picture of what God does with us. He takes our brokenness and repairs us so that we're made beautiful again. And God doesn't repair us with gold, silver, or platinum, but you know what he repairs us with? Do you know what material he uses to put us back together again? 
He uses the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 through 20, Paul tells us that we were not redeemed from our broken way of life using silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That, my friends, is God's kintsugi on us. Here's the point then. We're broken. There's no way around that. But through Jesus, we're made beautiful, even more beautiful than we were before we were broken. Listen, friends, here's one of the wonderful truths we're going to see in this series we're talking a lot about today. We're actually more beautiful than Adam and Eve were before they sinned. How is that the case? Well, because now God has taken the precious blood of his son and highlighted in some ways our defects and made them more beautiful. Jesus makes broken people beautiful. That's the theme of this series. And today we're going to look at just three verses where the Apostle Paul highlights this. So look with me now at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and we're going to pick up in verse 9. He says this to the church at Corinth, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now this, quite honestly, is simultaneously one of the most challenging, yet also one of the most wonderful passages in the Bible. And here's what what I need to tell you as we begin here. To get to the wonderful part, we first have to walk through the challenging part. So I can almost just feel the tension in the room when, when we read a passage like verses 9 and 10, there's tension there. But if we will walk through the tension and we will get through the difficulty, we're going to end in a really, really wonderful place. But you can't get to the wonderful place unless you go through the challenging place. So stick with me here as we walk through the difficulty of what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. And what he says is that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Another word for unrighteous is wrongdoers. In other words, those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not go to heaven. Paul's adamant about this. Note that in the middle of verse 9, he tells the Corinthians, do not be deceived or do not be fooled. And then goes on to list nine different examples of wrongdoers before stating a second time, that these people won't inherit God's kingdom. A contextual note here. The Corinthian culture in the first century was much like our Western culture today. It was a culture in which things like sexual immorality, idolatry, homosexuality, um, adultery, greed, drunkenness, and slander were not only acceptable, they were not only okay, but they were also celebrated. If you engaged in these kind of things, all right, you were applauded. Hey, yeah, great, you're doing it, you're doing it right. That was the kind of culture in Corinth in the first century, and that's the type of culture we have to realize that we are living in today. And just to give you one example to, to, to kind of prove this, all you have to do is go back to those Summer Olympics. I don't know if you watch the Summer Olympics or not. 
But in the most recent Summer Olympics, it just seemed like pretty much every promotion, every interview, every commercial, okay, was promoting the sins that we see here in verses 9 and 10. It was intentional to applaud and to celebrate these kinds of lifestyles. Now, if you didn't see the Olympics, all you have to do is turn on the TV any night of the week or go on social media, browse the internet, or, or again, just go to Walmart and you can see that that is the type of culture that we are living in. But the point I want to make is that because of their culture, the Corinthian Christians, like many Christians today, were being tempted to think that these behaviors were okay for believers, that it was acceptable to live this way. And that's why Paul says with a significant degree of alarm, don't be deceived. Don't fool yourself into thinking that people who live like this are going to find themselves in heaven. Now, let me be clear. And I want you to listen closely here. Paul's not saying that Christians don't commit the sins on this list. I, for one, can affirm that they very much do. What he is saying, though, is that those who live an unrepentant lifestyle characterized by these type of sins reveal that they aren't a part of God's kingdom, that they aren't, in fact, truly Christians. Here's how commentator David Pryor puts it. Paul is not talking about isolated acts of unrighteousness, but about a whole way of life pursued persistently by those who thus indicate that they will be aliens in the kingdom of truth and light. So, uh, will there be people who have committed sexual immorality in heaven? The answer to that is an unqualified yes. Will there be people who have committed adultery in heaven? The answer to that is an absolute yes. Will there be people who have practiced homosexuality in heaven? Yes. How can I say that? Well, verse 11, but such were some of you. How can I say that? We have examples of that, of believers committing these type of sins in the Bible. So yes, it's not the fact that you have done those that keep you out of heaven. What keeps you out of heaven is a lifestyle where you are unrepentant about it, where you are continuing to live in it, where you are refusing to believe the truth and be saved and recognizing that in being saved, that means you're turning from your former way of life. So I just want you to hear today, all right, because here's the truth. I'm going to get to this in a minute. We've all committed the sins on this list, some sins on this list. So I'm not saying if you committed these sins, and Paul's not saying, more importantly, that you're not going to heaven. What I'm saying is, is that an unrepentant lifestyle where we're just living in these things and where you're refusing to submit to the Holy Spirit of God is going to prevent us from going to heaven. Maybe I can put it this way. Do you know the only sin that prevents someone from going to heaven? The only sin, the unpardonable sin is refusing to listen to the Holy Spirit and to repent of your sin and be safe. That's the only thing that will keep someone out of heaven is unrepentant sin. With that said, let's briefly talk about each of the nine sins Paul lists here. All right, I'm just gonna give you a brief overview. What's sexual immorality? This is a big word. We're gonna talk a lot more about it next week, but sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Idolatry is putting something before God. Adultery is sexual activity between a married person and someone they're not married to. 
I think homosexuality is self-explanatory, but while the reference here in verse 10 is specifically to men, other places in Scripture, most notably Romans 1, prohibit this activity for women as well. Thieves refers to stealing. Greediness is always striving for more and lacking generosity. Being a drunkard means repeatedly being controlled by alcohol or other substance. Says, reviling is slandering others. And swindling is cheating or defrauding others. Now, I want to point out that what Paul says here is challenging on at least two levels. First, it's challenging because it sounds so harsh and judgmental to our 21st century ears. Doesn't it? I mean, can you admit that it does, right? Can you admit that, that you cringe at least a little bit when you read verses 9 and 10? I think if you, you would say that you, you don't cringe at least a little bit, you're being dishonest, which is on a list of another sins that Paul has in the New Testament, all right? Lying is sin too. And I, I got to admit to you, these verses are, are verses that could make a preacher tremble in the day and age that we live in. And let me tell you why. The reason why is that we're regularly drinking in the cultural Kool-Aid that tells us that no one has the right to tell us how to live, especially when it comes to things like sex and marriage. Our culture, almost ad nauseum these days, preaches that we should be able to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong based upon whatever we feel is right or wrong in that moment. And therefore, any pronouncement that the way we might be living or the choices we might be making is sin and could preclude us from heaven is extremely difficult for us to accept. We just need to realize this, that we're living in this culture in this time where we're just inundated constantly with this idea that we should be able to self-determine what is right and wrong for us. And we should be able to choose and nobody has the right to tell us any different. We are self-determinant and, and we are proud of it. And we want that to be the case. Now, you would probably not say that that is the way that you think, but I am telling you that your culture influences the way that you think. And so you react, neg- I somewhat react negatively to what Paul says in verses nine and 10. Now, here's the problem. By the way, let me also add this, okay? One of the reasons that we act negatively is not so much our own sin at, at times, but it's, also, it's actually the sin of other people, the struggles of other people. So a family member, a friend, they're committing some sin on the list is very, very clear. And, and because they are, and, and then we read Paul say, hey, people who practice these things, who live in these things, they're not gonna go to heaven. We tend to push back on that as well. The problem, of course, is that someone does have the right to tell us how to live. Someone does have the right to tell us what is right and wrong. Someone does have the right to determine who is allowed into God's kingdom. And of course, who is that? It's God himself, right? Since he's well God, and since he's the creator and maker of everything, he has every right to tell us what is right and what is wrong, what we can do and what we can't do. If I can put it this way, He's God and we're not, and so he, not we, gets to set the rules. Now, that's kind of hard. It's true, but it's hard. So, so, so let me go on the other side here for a second. And this is a little bit of a preview of what we're going to talk about next week. But we have to recognize that God actually gives us rules and he sets down his law for our good. 
He, he does it because he loves us and because he wants what's best for us. So all the things that God prohibits here in verse 9 and 10, he prohibits because they're harmful to us. Because they destroy us and they destroy others and they bring our lives and others' lives into chaos. So again, I'm going to give you a little preview of next week because it's so important. But anytime you see a rule or a law from God in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, you have to recognize that God has at least two purposes behind it. One is to protect us and the other is to point us to something better. Did you get that? Anytime God says, don't do this, he tells us don't do that because he's trying to protect us and because he's trying to point us to something better. So let me just use a really simple example, very prominent example. Let's talk about sexual immorality. So the word for sexual immorality, the Greek word is porneia, from which, of course, we get the word pornography. But it doesn't simply refer to pornography. It refers to any sexual activity outside of the relationship between a man and a woman who are married together. So this would include certainly pornography. Uh, it would include sex, uh, sexual intercourse. It would include masturbation. It would include lust. Any whole host of sexual sins, all right? Now, why does God prohibit sex outside of marriage? Is he just up there in heaven saying, I don't want them to have any fun and enjoyment? Is that why God gives that? No. Why does he do that? Because he knows that sex outside of marriage is harmful to us and because he wants to point us to the better reality and the better joy and the better contentment that comes when sex is reserved for marriage between a man and a woman. And by the way, and I especially want you young people to listen to this uh, here, here today. I, I know some of you are thinking, this is just crazy. This is old fuddy-duddy. What's this old guy talking about up here? He has no idea what he's talking about. Why in the world should I wait? Why should I reserve sex for marriage? Well, research, and I'm not talking about biblical research. I'm just talking about um, secular research has shown over and over again that the people who have the most satisfying sex lives are, can you guess? It's not young single people. All right, network TV, sitcom, they, they will tell you, they're, they're lying to you. Social media is lying to you. The people who have the most satisfied sex lives are older people who've been married for a long time. Okay? I'm not making it up, all right? Go Google, well, actually, you probably don't want to Google anything about sex or anything like that, so. Maybe I'll just post later on our social media to uh, that. Kids, don't go and Google that, all right? I'm, but I'm not, I'm not lying to you. I'm, I'm telling you the truth. That secular research backs up what we see in, in the Bible. And that the more sexual partners that you have, the lower your enjoyment will be now and, and in many cases for the rest of your life. God's protecting us and he's pointing us to something better. That's just one example. We'll talk about more of them throughout the series. Now, here's the second way that what Paul says is challenging. It's challenging because we're, again, all guilty of things on this list. Now, I'm not saying that we're all guilty of all of these things, but I am saying that we're all guilty of at least some of these things. And I especially want you church people to listen to me here. It's easy for us church people to focus on the sexual sins on this list. To say, yes, the sexually immoral, the adulterers, the homosexuals, those people won't be in God's kingdom. 
and not to own the fact that the idolaters, the greedy, and the slanders won't be in either. What am I getting at? I'm getting at the fact that at times, we Christians act as if there are acceptable sins and unacceptable sins. With our sins, notably, I think, on this list, all right, of greed and slander and um, what's the other one there that I'm missing? Idolatry being acceptable and then other sins of other people being unacceptable, notably sexual sins. But brothers and sisters, according to Paul here, idolatry and greed and slander are just as unacceptable as sexual sin, whatever that sexual sin may be. We can't read verses 9 and 10 and come away thinking that it applies to others without realizing that it also applies to, to us. So here's what I want us to, to, to realize, all right? I want us to realize that, that we all commit idolatry, that, that, that we all, in some, on a somewhat regular basis, are putting other things before God, whether it would be family, whether it would be work, whether it would be our hobbies, whether it would be just trying to, to get and establish more. Greed is a huge problem in the church. I just want to be honest with you. It's huge. We have a real generosity problem in the church where we're just trying to get more and accumulate more. All the while, we're not really investing in God's kingdom. We're not seeking to meet the needs of the world around us. And we also have a huge slander problem along with its sister sin, gossip. So, so, so we, we're regularly, even sometimes we're not realizing it, we're tearing people down. We're spreading things about them that may or may not be true. We're not actually seeking to build people up. We're actually tearing them down. And, and according, we got to get this, according to what Paul is saying here, slander is just as much of a problem as homosexuality is. They, they, they both, if they are continued in, unrepentant, will preclude us from the kingdom of God. So I told you that this is going to be challenging. You see, we all make the list. This passage here, 1 Corinthians 6, it's been so often used by Christians to denounce those people outside the church. And yet we need to see that it is a mirror which also denounces us. We're all broken, every single one of us. I'm broken, you're broken, we're all broken. And because we're broken, none of us deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. Just let that lay on you for a second. And now we'll turn because, what does verse 11 say? What does it say? And such were some of you. Were is past tense. We're broken, but our brokenness doesn't define us any longer. And it doesn't define us any longer because we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So listen, we're broken. All of us are broken, but we're beautiful. We're broken. But in Jesus, through faith in what he has done, we are beautiful. God makes us beautiful. I know you men, by the way, have a hard time thinking of yourself as beautiful, right? We don't like to think of ourselves as beautiful. But I have heard some of you call that buck you just killed beautiful. And I think I probably also heard some of you say that your truck is beautiful. 
So just accept it. Get over it. Actually, don't. Accept it and rejoice over it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God says you are beautiful. He has taken your brokenness and he has made you beautiful. There are three words that Paul uses to describe how God makes us beautiful through Jesus. Washed, sanctified, and justified. These are three words that depict different aspects of salvation. I could talk at length about them, but let me just give you an overview. Washed means to be cleansed from filth. It refers to how the stains of our sin have been removed. Sanctified means to be set apart as holy. It refers to how we've been released from the grip of sin. Justified means to be declared not guilty and righteous in God's sight. It refers to the fact that God no longer relates to us based on our sin, but rather based on Jesus's perfect life. So, so, so this here represents the fact that, that we've been cleaned of our sin. God doesn't see it anymore. It reflects the fact that, that we are now holy. God has set us apart for, for, from sin. He's released the grip of sin in our lives. And perhaps most wonderfully of all, it represents the fact that we are now no longer sinful in God's sight, no longer separated from him, but we are rather right with him. We are righteous in his sight. He has restored us to a relationship with himself. We are pure. We are holy. We are righteous. This is what God says about us. He says that even though we're broken, through Jesus, we've been made beautiful. Let me unpack this practically for you. I can think of at least three possible applications. First, if you haven't been washed, sanctified, and justified, if you haven't been made beautiful, be made beautiful through faith in Jesus Christ today. Paul says, you were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that God makes us beautiful through faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You see, God, Jesus is God's son who came to this earth and he lived a perfect life. And then he died the death that we deserve, taking the penalty for our sin. And when we believe this, God takes Jesus's perfect life and credits it to us so that now God no longer relates to us based on our sins and our brokenness, but rather based upon Jesus's perfection. It, this is the most wonderful truth in the world that, that through faith in Jesus, you, you can now relate to God and God can relate to you, not based on your track record, which is this, but based on Jesus's perfect life, which means you can relate to him like this and he can relate to you. And, and all you have to do, listen, all you have to do is place your faith in Jesus. All you have to do is believe that he's God's son who lived that perfect life. You don't, you can't die the death you deserve, paying the penalty for your sin, rose three days later so that through faith in him, your sins are forgiven. And now you are perfect and holy and beautiful in God's sight. And you will be that way forever. And I wanna be really, really clear. You, you don't have to clean yourself up in order for God to make you beautiful. God makes you beautiful and then he begins to clean you up. So, so you don't have to try to put your pieces of your life back together, which is what we try to do, right? We, we try to crumble all these things together and make something out of our life. You don't have to do that for Jesus to make you beautiful. In fact, guess what? You can't do it. You cannot do it. But he'll do it for you for free. He'll do it for you without trying. 
All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is surrender your life to him. And so if you never have before, surrender your life to Jesus and he'll take your brokenness. He'll make you beautiful in God's sight. And then you'll get the Holy Spirit living in you and he'll begin to make you into a person who actually lives out the beauty that you already have. So so here's the truth. I am beautiful in God's sight. And, and yet I'm not completely there yet, right? I'm still, God's still working on me. You know what I'm talking about here? God's still working on you. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, God now relates to us as beautiful. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit who begins to work in us so that we live a beautiful life. Which leads to the second application. The second application is this. If you've been made beautiful, be challenged today to live like it. If you've been made beautiful, be challenged today to live like it. Paul's primary concern, by the way, in this passage is that the Corinthian Christians were going back to living the way that they had lived before they had come to faith in Jesus Christ. So they had been living in all these sins. They had been living this lifestyle. They had been saved. God had made them beautiful. And now they're going back and they're living out of brokenness. They're living out of brokenness, not out of beauty. Let me ask you today. Are you living out of brokenness? Are you living out of beauty? Are you being what God has made you by grace? Are you being what you are? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are beautiful. Are you striving to live a beautiful life? A life of purity, a life of holiness, a life of righteousness? Or are you living in your brokenness? Which one is it? What we're going to work really hard at and talk a lot about is how do we live out the reality of the beauty that we have in Jesus Christ? This is what we are. Now the call for us in our lives is to live like that, to live a life that reflects our beauty, not our brokenness. By the way, this is the motivation for living a life of beauty. We don't try to live a life of beauty so that God will make us beautiful. We're already beautiful. He, listen, he, most wonderful truth here, again, is the fact that God has made us beautiful through the blood of his son. God sent his son to die in your place, to shed his blood, to give his life so that now this is you. This is you. And because he has done that, allow that to be the motivation and the power for living a beautiful life. Third, I wanna close now by speaking to those who struggle to see yourself as beautiful. To those who, because of what you have done or because of what has been done to you or because of both, you really have a hard time believing that you are beautiful. So you believe in Jesus You're a follower of Jesus, but because of what you've done, sins you've committed, sin that's been committed against you, probably in most cases because of both of those things, you're like, I just don't see the beauty. All I see is the brokenness. And if this is you today, and I know this is true for many of you, I want to say two things to you. One, I want to tell you, you are not alone. You are not alone. You're not alone. There are a lot of people in the room with you today who struggle to see themselves as beautiful because of what they've done and what has been done to them. 
I struggle to see myself as beautiful because of what I have done and what has been done to me. And I'm not just saying that for effect. And I can tell you again, there are lots of, we try to cover this up, right? And, and, and it's really not good for us at all. We try to cover this up because then we come into a gathering like this and we think, hey, all these people got it together. I'm the only one that's a mess. And I just want to tell you, after 10 years of pastoring this church, y'all mess, okay? You, you are. And I'm right there in that mess with you. And we can laugh about it all we want, but it's true. One of the things we talk about as elder and pastor team on a somewhat regular basis is that every family and every individual is a mess. We've all got skeletons in the closet. We've all got issues. We've all got problems. And one of the things that we really need to grow in as a church is owning our brokenness and being willing to admit it and be transparent and real about it so that we can help one another to live beautiful lives. It's really hard to live a beautiful life if you're not willing to be open about your brokenness. So you're not alone. Here's the second thing I want you to hear. I want you to hear that there's coming a day where you're not gonna struggle anymore. There's coming a day where you're not gonna have a hard time seeing yourself as beautiful. There's coming a day when Jesus is gonna return and all your shame and all your guilt and all your disordered desires and all your unfulfilled desires and all of that mess and self-loathing is gonna be gone. And you're gonna see yourself like this. And you're gonna see yourself like this forever. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 1 John 3, 2, which says this, beloved, we are God's children now. Now! And what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, we're not finished products. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Struggling brother or sister, one day you're going to see Jesus face to face. One day Jesus is going to part the clouds. One day Jesus is going to come to this earth. One day you're going to look him in the face, eye to eye, and in that moment you're going to be transformed so that you are completely like him. Completely like him. Perfectly beautiful. With no struggle to see yourself as beautiful ever again. And what I want to say to you as we end, and I'm really done with this, is what we must do is we must hold fast to that truth. We must long for that day. We must look for Jesus' return. We must remember that it's coming soon. Not someday, but soon. Are we looking forward to that day? Let's look forward to that day. Listen, let's look forward to that day, realizing that on our day, that day, all of our struggles, all of our difficulties, all of our supposed ugliness, all our brokenness is gonna be gone. It's gonna be gone forever. So let's hold fast. Let's look to that day. Because as we do, the Holy Spirit will help us to see ourselves as beautiful. It will help us to see others as beautiful. And it will help us to be a light to a broken world that needs to be made beautiful as well. Let's pray.